This is Buy-In, a valuation podcast from Horn Healthcare. Are there potential stark and anti-kickback traps for hospitals to be aware of? Welcome to part two of our interview with Cindy Reese, a healthcare attorney with Bass, Berry & Sims in Nashville, Tennessee. If you missed part one, please go back and listen to that episode. We'll pick right up where we left off. And I do have a question for you, I guess, you know, I know this is not necessarily in a kickback discussion, but, you know, the CMS, you know, with, with the benefits that, you know, we've seen in the final rule and OIG and their work in the in a kickback statute final rule, they, they clearly were collaborating throughout this rulemaking process, but there are some pretty big differences in, in the Stark final rule and the and a kickback statute after that final rule. Again, it, it's not a it's not a kickback discussion, but are there some traps that hospitals need to be aware of in their physician arrangements uh, that may be compliant from a Stark standpoint, but but could be problematic under the federal and a kickback statute? Are, are there any of those things that that hospitals need to look out for, Cindy? Yeah, there are a few things I'll, I'll point out here. I'm sure there are others, but these are the ones that, that came to mind. Um, you know, typically it's been easier to comply with the anti-kickback statute than the Stark Law um, if the rules governed similar behavior because of the fact that the anti-kickback statute is intent-based mm -hmm. and the safe harbors are not absolute requirements. Um, they They certainly provide you with guidance and with like it says, a safe harbor, but the but the fact that it's not, you know, that an arrangement is not in a safe harbor just moves you into a facts and circumstances mm -hmm. analysis and puts the burden on hospitals to evidence their compliance with the anti-kickback statute if they're not in it. Mm -hmm. um, with the value-based rules, one distinction that actually makes it easier uh, um, under Stark is what has been referred to as the ineligible entities prohibition. And th this list, um, this is what uh, the OIG did. This list of different types of entities, um, including among them compounding pharmacies, laboratories, pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, and wholesalers, uh, PBMs and DME uh, prosthetic and orthotic and supplies providers with certain exceptions, um, they are able to be included within the definition of a value-based enterprise participant under mm -hmm. both the OIG and the Stark final rules. But the OIG restricts them from utilizing the value-based safe harbors while CMS did not. And what CMS said was, we're gonna monitor, we're gonna see how it goes, so you might have an arrangement that, that fits a Stark exception, but under the anti-kickback statute, you're not going to fit a safe harbor because, right. because if one of those entities is involved in the, in the financial arrangement or the, the value-based arrangement. Um, the OIG did carve out limited technology participants that can rely on the care coordination safe harbor for arrangements involving digital health technology. So it was sort of a carve-out of the carve-out. Um, a, a second example, um, with the value-based enterprise definition, CMS did not require um, a single document to be used as the governing document. Both rules require a governing document that lays out how the VBE is going to be governed. 
Um, but the OIG does require a single document. So it, it's really, really best practices anyway to put it in a document and to put it in one document so everyone knows where it is. Mm -hmm. but, but CMS did give a little bit more flexibility. Uh, another example um, is the definition of value-based activity. OIG excluded a quote-unquote referral from the definition, but CMS did not. And CMS explained that in their existing definitions and under the, the Stark Law before the final rule, plan of care um, is deemed a referral under the Stark Law. And since care planning is a critical part of care coordination, um, it's, it would be deemed to be the taking of an action if you were establishing a plan of care, which is part of what's required under the definition of a value-based activity. So it's okay under, under the Stark Law, but uh, the OIG wouldn't, would, not, um, would not allow it under their safe harbor because it's, it's definition, it, it, as defined, it's a referral. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. Buy-in is brought to you by Horn Healthcare. For over 60 years and with more than 70 dedicated accounting and advisory professionals, Horn Healthcare is a decidedly different firm. Find us online at hornllp.com. And we're back to our conversation with Cindy Reese. So, Greg, let me ask you this. Um, Physician-owned groups are also impacted by the stark final rule changes, although at least the change in the definition of group practice is not supposed to be effective until 2022. Um, uh, of course, we did have the recent um, order from President Biden, which may defer that uh, at least for 60 days while folks have a chance to look at that change. But what are groups doing to prepare for the impacts on their physician's compensation formula? As I think about the, the final rule and uh, all of the different changes in, in the Stark law in particular. I, I think about these uh, changes that affect uh, physician-owned group practices as well. Um, and there's a little different effective date uh, on those mm -hmm. changes. So when we think about you know a hospital-employed uh, physician practice as opposed to a physician-owned group, I think they're, they're kind of approaching those uh, a little differently. I think CMS kind of uh, thoughtfully gave an extra year for groups to prepare ahead uh, prepare ahead for that and use the coming year to do that. So, uh, yeah, unless the, unless uh, what uh, President Biden has just done has said, hold on for 60 days. I, I want to look, we want to look at everything that there's uh, a possibility that there's a, there's going to be a little bit of a delay, but it's still, you're right. It did say until a year, but since it's not effective until January, 2022, we may see a change. I, I don't know. That's a great thought. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. So that's uh that's good to know. Um, you know, we've been thinking about what groups are doing and, and uh, been getting some questions about groups as they try to prepare for the impact on their physician compensation formula. So we have been, and, and maybe this is premature, but we have been giving some thought to, to some of that. You know, CMS clarified in its definition of a group practice, what it means to distribute overall profits of the group. Um, Physician-owned groups, for example, need to qualify as group practices to fit under the in-office ancillary services exception. So physician groups have to be sure that their income distribution formulas conform to, to those requirements. Uh, some groups, especially those with more than five physicians or 
beginning to look at whether they need to clean up their models before the end of this year to get ready for next year, if in, if in fact the, the 2022 uh, <laughs> deadline goes forward that way. Uh, the final rule is making it necessary for groups with profit distribution formulas that have separate distribution methods in place for what we call pods uh, of DHS profits, designated health services profits, to possibly change how that DHS is distributed. Cindy, I'm sure you've read this over and over again in, in your digesting of the final rule, but CMS gave a good example in his commentary. They, they gave the example of a group practice with 15 physicians divided into three pods. Let's call them pod A, pod, a, pod B, and pod C with five doctors in each of those pods. For each of those pods, the practice is going to have to aggregate the profits from all DHS furnished by the group. Yep. And the practice can, yeah, and the practice can distribute the overall profits from DHS of pod A using one methodology like per capita. Uh, the overall profits from all DHS of pod B using a different method, maybe non-DHS personal production. And they gave a third example of a of all profits from DHS to pod C using another method that didn't directly relate to the volume of value of physician referrals of designated health services. So the, the practice can't use, I think this is kind of a summary here, the practice can't use different methods to distribute profits attributable to different types of DHS within a pod. Mm -hmm. So practices are looking at how the changes, uh, how those changes impact their, their practices. But they're also, you know, to the, to the discussion we had earlier, Cindy, they're also looking at how changes from the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule Final Rule and the Consolidated Appropriations Act impact the revenues by provider. And so, you know, like we were talking about earlier, even recasting CPT data to take into consideration those changes that we talked about earlier and how those are going to impact physician compensation in, in the group setting. So, um, you know, those those are things that, that folks are starting to look at. And of course, the, the start changes also include, as you know, as you've been discussing, an exception, you know, exceptions that allow physicians to be paid profits from DHS that are attributed directly to their participation in value-based enterprises. And so groups are also studying the opportunities for participation in value-based arrangements or possibly even making changes to existing uh, value-based deals to fit within the new exception. So that's that's just kind of an observation observation from, from our end on just some of the physician groups that, uh, that, that we're engaged with as well. All right, well, I've got one last question for you, Cindy, and, and that is, uh, you know, the final rules were effective January 19th. So what, what should providers, and, and in this case, maybe hospitals in particular, really need to try to prioritize to address the changes that are reflected in the final rules, like, like many of those we've talked about today and, and more? Well, again, looking at it from both the value-based exceptions and then the other Stark rule changes, I think starting with the, the value-based exceptions, hospitals and all providers, but certainly hospitals, should take inventory of their compensation arrangements with physicians and with the group practices. Uh, it's going to take a little time, but they need to get familiar with the new family of defined terms in the value-based rules and be willing to think outside the box because this final rule gives them a green light to be more creative and more innovative. Now, their need for sophisticated data analytics is going to increase as a result because mm -hmm. without diving into you know, a, a big analysis again of all that terminology, 
you've got to have, you know, a value-based purpose, one or more. You've got to have value-based activities that are supporting that value-based purpose. And in order to do the monitoring that is required, you're just going to have to have the ability to, to do a pretty sophisticated um, analysis of the data that you get. Um, on the other Stark rule changes, I think that um, providers need to consider whether the changes that were made to the big three, uh, the definitions there that you just spoke about, um, mm -hmm. the new exception Z, uh, the clarifications to the definition of designated health services and isolated transactions. Um, we didn't talk about that, but there were some changes made to that exception yeah. that, that uh, I think some folks might've been surprised to see. Um, I, I think that getting comfortable with those changes will give, give them some flexibility to be able to do some, some different models. Um, I think that compliance policies and procedures may need amending to take advantage of certain things like the 90-day grace period that is now allowed to reconcile payment discrepancies post-termination of an agreement. There, there's also a 90 day, 90 consecutive calendar day um, provision that they can, um, they have that providers will now have to obtain a written uh, arrangement once an arrangement becomes non-compliant, and that you know to fix in effect a potential Stark violation. And then the, this is one that I think a lot of people will be excited about: the ability to modify compensation prospectively during the one-year term of an, of an arrangement, mm -hmm. um, it, you, you still, you'll still meet set in advance, but you've got the ability to make a change. It, can be, it, it, it has to be prospective. It can't be retrospective. And you can't start to um, pay for that, you know, start to provide that service right. and pay that additional amount until you've modified it in writing. You can't use the 90-day grace period for this one, but it does give you the ability to go, mm, we, we didn't really get it right on the first go here. Let's modify it. Still have to meet all the other terms of the exception, but it, it again gives you some flexibility. So I think there's a lot to think about in terms of what do your template agreements say? Are there provisions you're ready to go ahead and, and modify because you do have this additional flexibility? Um, and, and bring in folks like you to help them look again at the, at the big three and see if they can make some modifications there to their compensation arrangements. It's lots of opportunity for them. Absolutely. I tell you, there's a lot to consider in all of this. And, you know, I think a large majority of it is, is, is resulting in additional flexibility and welcome changes. And so, you know, I'm glad to see it. And, uh, you know, I, I think it certainly gives the, the industry the flexibility to, to enter into more uh, value-based arrangements, and, and it certainly modernizes the statute. There's, there's no doubt about that. So I would agree. You know, it, it seems like we just started talking, but we are already out of time. So, Cindy, I just I can't thank you enough for uh, all you do and for especially for taking time to visit with me today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and I certainly enjoy these conversations. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me, Greg. I, I very much enjoyed being on here with you. Absolutely. And, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. I'm Greg Anderson with Horn. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Buy-In, a podcast from Horn Healthcare. Buy-In is produced by Horn LLP. 
Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. For more about Horn, visit hornllp.com.